Welcome to the First Timers Podcast Show, where we offer insight, tips, and advice for first-time or long-time home buyers, sellers, and investors. I'm your host, Mikey T., personal home consultant, real estate agent, homeowner, and investor. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Google Play, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at First Timers Podcast Show. Today, we're going to learn about selling your home after owning it for a long time, 30-plus years being a longtime homeowner. And across from me, I have this rock star, attorney Evan Bomber, owner of the Ev- of the Bomber Law Group with locations in Asbury Park and Homedale? Or? Correct. Yep. All right, awesome. He's also the co-host of the Mullet Cast. Check him out there. And uh, do you have your own uh, IG page or anything for the Mullet Cast yet or no? No. Nope. All right, you could just bless it up through my own. All right, well, you could check out his site right now on Instagram at Evan Bomber, and on Facebook you could look him up at Bomber Law Group. So go to at Evan Bomber right now. You could see a little bit about him and about the Mullet Cast. Uh, he, he posts all the time when they update that. So, Evan, thank you very much for coming to the show. Mikey T, what's up, man? What's How going on? I appreciate you being here and uh, helping uh, you know help other people. My pleasure. Now, before we get into uh, the, the real estate end of things, I'd like to learn a little bit more about you. Uh, basically, what were you doing before you got into law and became a practicing attorney? Right. Um, I took a little bit of a twisted path, excuse me, getting into law. Um, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer back in the day, Um, changed my mind. So I was in law school straight out of undergrad. I was working at an entertainment law firm in the city, um, going to gigs every night, basically helping shop bands, that kind of thing. Um, got pretty close to finishing law school, and I was like, what am I doing, man? I hate lawyers. Uh, I hate the law. <laughs> I don't know too many people that do like lawyers. <laughs> I know, it's true. <clears throat> you know, and then the big thing for me is I wanted to work in music law, and you know, I had this image of the entertainment lawyer of you know working with the band, helping shape their career, that kind of thing. Um, and what, quick, what kind of law is music law? Like, um, just I, contracts and stuff like that? Exactly. That's what I you know, quickly learned is – you know, the bands weren't coming around our office that often. Like, you know, maybe they're, they'd pop in when they were in town to sign something. You know, a few would check in here and there. And I quickly realized that bands spent all their time with their managers. So I was like, oh, man, you know, I, that was a major miscalculation. I don't want to be an entertainment yeah. lawyer. I want to be a manager. I want to be a manager. I want right. to be with them on the road, exactly. not in the law firm talking to the managers. Totally. So, you know, and, and you know, youth, you think you know everything, you know, something like, probably 24-ish, almost done with law school. And I'm like, you know, forget this, man. I'm out. Um, I found a six-month gig working for a composer, uh, uh, an artist named Ryuichi Sakamoto. Um, Had a new album coming out on Sony Classical. He was doing um, an event to open the World Financial Center in the city, which is basically that uh, there's a place called the Winter Garden. It's like a glass dome in the World Financial Center across from the World Trade Center. so they, they were looking for someone for six months to help promote a record, promote this concert, and, you know, basically in addition to their staff for, for that period of time when they had extra work. Um, so I was like, that's my ticket out of here. I'm going to hop on this, you know, get into management, you know, peace out, law school. Um, 
and I ended up being there 13 years. So wow. I, I kind of developed for him. For him, yeah. That's amazing. Um, yep. So he had uh, he ran he had his own record label, his own music publishing company, his own management company. Uh, we had an office in New York and Tokyo, and I kind of quickly, you know, over time, I guess, you know, I went from a six month internship basically to eventually as his manager and and helping run some of those companies. That is amazing. So thirteen years being there, mm-hmm. what what made the the pivot to get? I mean, that you know from. Right. That to practicing law again. Right. That's a big pivot. Yep. So over <laughs> that time, like I knew enough to be dangerous, basically, um, with contracts. So over time being there, you know, I was negotiating a lot of his contracts. And, you know, you gradually, you know, in the back of your mind, you're like, man, I probably should have just finished law school. Like, you know, I, I could be doing a lot more. How, how close were you? Um, one independent study. Oh my! God. Oh my! That, that's like my wife. She she stopped going to college, at like one class away from getting her whatever. Right. And, uh, and I'm like, man, like you're that close. How yeah, do you, yeah. how do you not just grab it? Right. I was young and arrogant. It was yeah. an independent study. Um, Did your parents want to kill you? Oh uh, yeah. For <laughs> um, you know, it was an entertainment independent study. And I thought I knew everything. I'm like, well, this is professors telling me about entertainment law. Yeah, like, right. you know, what are you, are you kidding me? Like, I live this stuff. Um, so, yes, in hindsight, obviously, is always 2020. Yeah, of course. Right. So eventually, you know, it came a point in, in my career in life where it made sense. Like, you know what? I'm going to go back to law school. So I literally had to go back to school and do it all over again. How um, much of it? What do you mean? Entirely. Oh. So there's like a five-year window you have to finish school from when you start <laughs> and to you when you finish. you missed the window. I missed that window by, I don't even know, a decade at least, right? <laughs> so um, so I was 39, went back to school. Good for um, you. Looked around the room. I was the only kid with a yellow legal pad. <laughs> Everyone else was hammering laptops. And they know? had no idea what that legal, <laughs> their legal pad. What the heck is that thing? Yeah. <laughs> Why is that paper so long mm. and yellow? Right, totally. <laughs> um, yeah, so I did it over. Um, went back to school. I uh, went year-round, graduated in two years. Um, after that, uh, I guess a little bit of school wasn't enough. I got my LLM in taxation at New York Law School. Um, so I did that for another, you know, year and a half, roughly. Um, I kept working in entertainment along the way. Um, during that time, I was working for a, a business manager in Manhattan. Also, we did tour accounting for um, for bands. We did tax agreements for international artists that were touring the United States. Wow. Um, so I kept, you know, I got back into it a little bit to keep active, you know, on the music side of things. Um, but then it was pretty clear I was probably going to open my own law firm. You know, I was in my early 40s. Believe it or not, actually, while I was studying for the bar exam, I was a intern at the public defender's office in Middlesex County, uh-huh. um, so to try to learn some court skills. You know, it's interesting to go back to school. Um, you obviously have to be a little bit humble, you know, because my supervisors were probably like twenty nine, thirty. Um, you know, <laughs> wow. and, and I'm an intern. Yeah, you're, um, you're the intern. You're right. the, you're the new guy. I at, judges at yelling at me because I don't know where to stand. You know that kind of <laughs> stuff. Um, <clears throat> so it was a good experience, you know. Um, so I came back, you know, probably in my twenties, I wasn't meant to be a student. You know, I had visions of, like you said, being on, you know, I thought music law was being on a tour bus with Motley Crue and just tearing it up, you know, that's, that's what I think. That was the wrong vision. (laughs) (laughs) You're right next to the manager having 
a crazy time getting, right. getting right. the scraps from the, the front band. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, you know, my head wasn't screwed on straight. So when I went back to school, I kind of went through it, you know, for the right reasons, which was obviously to learn and, um, you know, learn more about the law. So I have like a the one common thread throughout my career is really um, a lot of strength with dealing with contracts. Sure. Um, so all throughout my years in the music business, it was negotiating and drafting contracts. Um, you know, and then when I got out of school, that's why real estate was kind of a natural fit a little bit. Um, I got into it begrudgingly. You know, it wasn't something like I set out of school um, saying, you know, I want to be a real estate attorney. Yeah. Um, but you kind of find out like, oh, this is actually a pretty good fit. There's a lot to me. There's a lot of similarities between being an artist manager and being a real estate attorney. Yeah, like what? Um, you know, I view and probably everyone out there that is in a different part of the process is going to yeah. view themselves the same way. So like when I say like I view the attorney as almost like the quarterback for the transaction, probably every realtor says, what's this guy talking about? Like, I'm the quarterback of the transaction. And every mortgage person <laughs> saying, more, yeah, no, yeah. Between the three right. of us, we're always arguing who, who's more important. But, right. but, I, but I think, like, for the artist manager, you were sort of – I was the contact person for the artist, right? So he had a lot of different people in his life. And, you know, I was his liaison to, like, the public, to his record label, to his, you know, his uh, publicist, to the promotion company. So you were – you were literally in all aspects of that person's career and you were speaking for them when they couldn't speak to those people directly. Sure. Right? So in that regard, like I view it like, so, you know, the, the realtor is one of those people on the team, the mortgage person is one of those people on the team, the inspector. So I am sort of the, like an interface between, you know, the, the buyer seller and the rest of the people Absolutely. on their team. Yeah. Once, once the, once it gets put in your hands, everything else gets funneled back through you. Right. You know, where before, you know, it's kind of it's in my hands when I'm looking at the house and I'm you know coming up with a price to offer. But once it goes into your hands, that's that's it. Right. My hands are kind of we funnel everything right through the attorney at that right. point. So I mean, it, it is true as the attorney, you are the the quarterback. You're kind of you're the whole manager of everything, and and a good attorney or a bad attorney could really shape the deal right, early totally. on. Yeah, and I'm sure you see it. You know, on on your end dealing with other ends and you know uh when you have someone that's not good at that being in that position they could really screw everything right. up totally i mean that's the other thing you have to check your ego a little bit too it's like i'm not the most important person in this deal you know what i mean my client is um yes. and a lot of people forget that you know they they view it like they're the most important part of the deal. And if they don't get their way, then things go sour. Yeah. Right. And that's another similarity with artist management is like at the end of the day, I represent uh, an artist. Right. And I, I need to have his best interest or her best interest at mind in mind. Um, it's the same thing with representing a buyer or seller of real estate. You know, but it doesn't matter what, what I think it's, you know, what's best for them. Absolutely. And, and that's sometimes hard to do is check yourself at the door. And right. And put them and their their wants and needs ahead of your own. Uh, I always say, I'll show people homes in places I may not buy, but if it's a place that they want and then a place that they love, right. I'm here to help them in that process. It's it's not about me; it's about them. And the same thing with you. I I, I find that sometimes, uh, like discount attorneys, <laughs> you know they. <laughs> They they they're feeding their pipeline with a lot more leads, and they're giving a, a less. It, it's natural; they're just giving less service, and a lot of times it, it's 
I don't, I, I feel like when I work with them that they're putting their interest ahead of their clients. Right. They, they just need to get the deal done because they have a hundred others coming through the pipeline and they, they need to keep this, this machine rolling Right. where, uh, someone like yourself, you know, you take more time and you're able to, and you care more about the client. So I, I think that, you know, clients definitely appreciate that. They don't even know sometimes that what they got in, in a, in an attorney or a professional like yourself right. until they hear the horror stories down the road. Right. And, uh, it's, it's very important to put the client's, in, in in front of yourself, you know, sure. before yourself. And, right. and that, that kind of leads to, um, I think when we talk about homeowners that have owned homes for a long time, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they're normally ready to move on past the house that they, they, uh, help raise their kids and everything in. Right. And now they're, they're looking to sell, but they, they haven't sold in, in, in since they bought the house. Right. Um, and I think those sellers, uh, have a unique set of uh, hurdles that you got to deal with. Sure. You know, uh, you know, I deal with it to a certain level. I think between the two of us on the sell side, because we don't have a mortgage person there to kind of put a little pressure on. Right. But it's there's a lot of psychology there mm-hmm. to uh, you know what the home is worth. Uh, you know, when when the buyers ask for all these fixes, <laughs> you know, do they do they uh, do do they want to even – what do you mean they want to fix that? What, they don't right. like my kitchen. You know, I, I spent all this money to renovate right. that 25 years ago. <laughs> exactly. So what are some of the, the hurdles that you find uh, longtime homeowners kind of face when, uh, when they're finally getting into the process? Right. So it's tough. I, I think about it from <clears throat> my buyers also is – you know, I tell a lot of buyers, I say, you know, for whatever reason, just coincidentally, everyone happens to sell their home when the roof is like 30 years old, <laughs> the hot water heater is 20 years old, yeah. you know, every major system, like the, the HVAC, um, <clears throat> you know, they don't even make that anymore and yep. it's 35 years old. So we talk a lot about um, life expectancy and beyond its useful life and those things. Um, from buyers, you know, it's, it's important too because they have to understand – when they go into something, they're not buying a new home, right? Now, there's it's yes. a delicate balance between um, everything needs to work and, you know, things could be a ticking time bomb. You, you need to have enough information, but you can't be necessarily scared away. Now, for some people, if literally they're spending every last dollar to get into a home, um, maybe a home with systems that old is not for them. Sometimes there's ways around it, like home warranty, those kind of things. You can yes. do certain things, right? Um for sellers, I think the same thing. They have to know, look, this thing is a ticking time bomb, you know, and everyone's, you can't expect, a, you know, everyone likes to say, oh, but they, they did a, you know, they came and looked at the home. All of these things were apparent to them, you know. Yeah. Buyers don't look for, the, you know, a buyer's not walking in saying, you know, that roof looks a little old. I looked at the tag on the hot water heater. Um, you know, it's from 78. You know, they're looking in like they're picturing themselves sitting in the family room and watching football. You yes. Know? That's, they're like, oh, dude, it was the best setup in there. Like the kitchen was awesome. Had a patio, the yard suite, you know. That's exactly. Yeah, that's, that's kind of when they go in, that's their mindset. <clears throat> and exactly. A, and a lot of times – they don't see a lot of things until the second showing. Sure. The second showing, it's almost like it's a brand new home to them. It is. They right. go, whoa, there was a closet here? I didn't know this was here. And we could have clearly opened the door. Right. And I was like, <laughs> you don't remember? There's that weird sure. dress in there that you hated. But it, it's it, the first time people view a home, and it's it's normally 20 to 30 minutes, it goes by quick. Yep. And 
they only have that small period of time to, like you said, visualize themselves like, is this a home I could see myself sure. living in for the next right. 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah. And then things unfold as they go back. And yeah. Well, when it, you go through with an inspector, it's an entirely different story. Oh, the whole yeah. – n- now, now they're like – they want to slash everything like they're a gladiator or something. Right. And, and that, that in part is why I started the company I started mm-hmm. to kind of bring some of that information up front during their first or second showing, not not to scare them, but right. before you put the offer in, kind of realize a little bit of what you're buying. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you hit home inspection, it doesn't slap you across the face. Right. And yet you kind of mentally go, okay, well, I'm buying a house with a little bit, the roof's a little old and I'm probably going to have to replace the water heater in a couple of years. People are... Pretty much fine when they learn that up front. Right. When they hear it at home inspection, the home inspector report looks like it's it's dead. Like, right. Oh my God, you got you have to replace the roof. You right. got you need a contractor to look at this and that. And people go, Whoa, like right. this house is falling apart. Yeah. We and, need a new uh, AC. We need this. Yeah, you need a new AC. The valve that's been stuck open since seventy eight right. suddenly is a problem today. And most of the time it's not a problem. Right. But now the inspector's job is to f- see all this. Sure. But it also, you know, the the buyer gets all this information. Then they give it to that the seller that's been there for thirty years and go. There's nothing wrong. Right. What are you talking about? My water heater's fine. I got hot water every time I take a shower. Right. So there's two types of sellers too. There's the people that are in denial. Right. <laughs> like, I, I specifically remember this one seller. Like the home inspector uh, took a, a reading of the air conditioning, right? So, I mean, we have, like, a device that tells you what the exact temperature is. Like, this isn't, like, opinion, right? Yeah. And they're, so we're saying, like, the AC's not only, you know, forget that it's old. It's just not working right now. It's not cooling to the level it's supposed to. And the response was, I've never had a problem with the AC, right? <laughs> <laughs> and we're not, I'm fine with 80-degree right, right? well, weather. Right. 80 degrees in the house is perfect for me. Right. Maybe you like it hot. So you have those people that no matter what the report says, they're going to view their, their home as perfect and they've never had a problem with anything. Um, and then there are the people that understand, you know, yes, I haven't done anything to this house in a long time, but I want to get out with uh, as much profit of, in the house as I can, you know, this yeah. is maybe this is my retirement, you know. Um, so I'm um, at the same time, I'm not going to put a new roof on for someone else to enjoy. I'm not putting in a brand new system when I've been using this, you know, AC for the last 10 years myself. Um, you know, I'm not upgrading the home for someone else to come in and enjoy. Like you yeah. are buying, you know, a home in this condition. And so I think part of it starts also with realtors um, and pricing the home properly in the beginning, mm-hmm. you know. So I think if a home's priced appropriately, you can, with a straight face, say, "Look, all of these conditions were factored into the to the price." Absolutely, and, and that that is a large part of the just getting it going is the agent educating the the seller mm-hmm. and giving them expectations on what they're selling and being realistic. Right. You know, it, it's easy for an agent to come in and say to a seller, what do you think your house is worth? And they say 450 and they go, I, bu- yes, you're right. right. Let's put my sign out there tomorrow. And then every two weeks are having a reduction conversation with them. Right. Because everyone going into the house goes, there's no home selling for 450 in this condition. Right. And I got to do this and I got to do that. Exactly. Cha-ching, cha-ching, so, cha-ching. you know, when, when I go for a, a listing presentation, whatever, I, I tell them I, I do a walkthrough first, right. and I kind of get a visual scan of 
all right, I see a lot of items that are going to come up in home inspection. Let's look at what's on the market that's in this condition, right. not the house that just been totally renovated with a new kitchen, bath, new floors. That's not your comp. That, right. That's that's the almost brand new home. And set the seed for reality. Sure. Um, now, I may not get as many homes to sell because of that, and that's fine. Right. But I know eventually when I see the sold price, it's close to what I said it was worth. Right. Because it's only going to sell for what it's going to sell for. Sure. You could, you could wish it all you want to sell for more. Right. But I, I think if you give it, – it's all, all about educating the buyer and the seller through the mm-hmm. whole process. The more information you could give them, right. real, honest information, I think eventually it sets in. But I would imagine that there's also probably a generation kind of – certain generations accept things a little bit better than others. Right. You know, like maybe the – the I don't even know, like the older, maybe above 70 seller – they may have an idea what their house is worth right. than the younger one that might be a little more realistic because maybe they're they're looking for a new home themselves sure. and they're kind of going through the process themselves. Right. So do you find that – I'm not trying to be uh, ageist or whatever, right, but, right. but the older, older buyer has a little harder time, needs more hold, hand-holding than like the middle-aged buyer? I, think I mean it, the seller. Right, and I think it varies. Like you said, everyone's – economic situation is a little bit different, right? There are people that, you know, um, maybe they're downsizing, so they're not as hung up of every last dollar. Maybe they, you know, they've already paid off their mortgage or, you know, there's not a lot left to pay yeah. it off. So their, their profit's going to be a lot larger. Um, so they have more flexibility. There's other people that are like, you know, the market's hot right now. They may be selling their house for a nice price, but what are they going to buy? You know, they suddenly go and see, wow, for what I'm selling my house for, I'm getting less of a house (laughs) and I'm trying to upgrade, you know? So everyone's situation's a little bit different. Um, You know, but there are, and I, I think the unique thing about this business is you just realize dealing with people is interesting for lack of a better word, right? Everyone has their own um, unique view of things. Everyone has, there's some people, no matter how many times you tell them, like, you know, I had a client who I knew was going to be a problem during the inspection process. Um, we were looking at disclosures and we went over it really carefully because I said, you know, the age of all these systems is pointed out in the disclosure. And we talked about, you know, what the inspection, the inspection report without a doubt is going to say the average life expectancy of a hot water heater is 10 years. Yeah. This hot water heater is 12 years old. You know, budget, it's beyond its useful life. Budget to replace it right now. So we went through that whole scenario. And sure enough, <laughs> when he gets the inspection report, they need to replace the HVAC. They need to replace the hot water heater. They need to replace the roof. I'm like, remember we talked about? They're not going to replace all these things. You know? Yes. So you know, some people, no matter how much you tell them, it, it doesn't matter, right? They want what they want. Um, other people, I think, take a realistic approach. And so I don't know that it necessarily goes with any particular age. I think everyone has their own situation. You know, they they have like, you know, maybe someone – I had a couple going through a divorce. I was actually on the, the buyer's side and we were trying to, to you know, maximize the credit in uh, inspections. And they said, look, we're literally at break even right now. And yeah. I didn't believe it. I'm like, I don't know. It's not, you know, is it possible? Sure. And sure enough, when we, you know, got the closing, the proceeds they split was like $7. So oh, my God. They were literally at, you know, 
that's all they could do. Man, that's, you know? that's a tough way to end the marriage. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a little insult to injury. <laughs> you can't right? even go to McDonald's for seven bucks. Right. So, um, so everyone's situation is a little bit different. Yeah. So I think part of it is trying to figure out, you know, what, how can you maximize, you know, for your client based on the other party situation. Now, w- with the uh, with older parents selling their homes, do you find yourself dealing with the the kids? In any of the transactions, uh, I mean, there's a lot of times my father is 79 years old. So right. when we go to the doctors, one of us is there. Like we're there the whole, you know, the whole way because he's not, I mean, now he's, he's right from Italy. So he doesn't right. uh, understand as well anyway. But right. um, do you find that dealing with the longtime homeowner that maybe now you're dealing also with their kids yes. in the process? Yep, that does happen. Sure. Um does it make it easier or harder at times, or is it kind of? Uh, sometimes it's easier. Um, it's easier in terms of typically where it's most easy is just communication because they're using email, text. You know, yeah. so there are sometimes you. Uh, I haven't had it so much, but there's also older old time attorneys, right? So there's attorneys who still say, um, "We got the inspection report. Um, my secretary is scheduling an appointment for our client to come in and review it." Uh, <laughs> Next Wednesday, you know, Wednesday, Thursday. Oh, my God. Uh, and then I'll dr- dictate a letter that will be sent out. You know, so there, there's uh, attorneys like that. There's clients like that. Yeah, there's so when, a lot of moving parts right. to this. Uh, so sometimes it makes it easier dealing with a child because you could email them something. They'll email you back, say, yes, I agree. Just do it. Um, you know, part of it is obviously as an attorney, you have to talk to the client in advance because no matter what, the client is still the, the homeowner. Um, so, you know, obviously they have to agree. Yes. Just deal with my child. Um, so I, I do encounter that a, a decent amount. Yeah, definitely. Now with these older homes, uh, especially when people own it for years and years, old liens sometimes pop up right. in the search do you find that presenting these liens, like, hey, guess what? You had a, a lien back in '82, right? Uh, it, it, does that tend well, to be an issue that that comes up at times for you? And and how's that conversation kind of go? Sometimes, oddly enough, sometimes it's easier if the same homeowner has been in the home because when a title company does a search, they'll go back 20 years and sometimes they'll pick up uh, prior owner judgments. Those are mm-hmm. harder to deal with because. Um, a, I don't know who these people. Are. You know, this is someone that owned this home three owners before my client. Yeah, I don't even know how. You know, I don't have any paperwork that has any old contact info. So recently, I was googling because we did have a prior owner issue. Um, well, I mean, as a starting point, the quickest solution for anybody is present your title policy, and that should clear out those prior owner judgments. Now, but a lot of these, I mean, do you find a lot of title policies that went back that far? So the the key is, let's say, my owners, when they closed, um, there was a, a search done, no liens were at the time. So the title company is guaranteeing that there were no issues at, during that period of time. Yeah. So that will clear up anything that pops up. Because what you could have is you could have like prior owner Mike Smith um, now has a child support judgment. Do, is it a lien against the house? We're not sure. And it's the homeowner's responsibility to clear it up, right? Um, so the title policy is the quickest way to do that. Other times you're doing, you know, research. Sometimes clients, uh, 
a more classic example for a, a homeowner that's been there somewhere a long time is like they refinanced 15 years ago, 10 years ago, and the first mortgage was never properly recorded as discharged. Uh-huh. So it still shows as an open mortgage. So people are like, what do you mean? I, I paid that, you know? Um, yeah, so a lot of times, 25 getting, years right, ago. So sometimes yeah. getting those paperwork. That can be a little trickier because half of those mortgage companies don't exist anymore. Everything's, uh, you know, governed by a few of these pain in the neck mortgage companies to deal with. You have to go to their historical department um, because the records aren't, if they're older, aren't on, you know, their main computer system. Um, So those are all things that take time. So as long as you deal with them in a timely manner, it doesn't hold up your closing. Now, there's going to be situations where, you know, estates end up taking, you know, the, the kids take over the home from the parents. And those those things can pop up. Do you suggest maybe when uh, you know you have parents pass away and they're they're leaving a house for the kids to do a title search just to find out if there's anything going on there before they look to sell their home instead of putting it up waiting and, and right. waiting, the next thing you know they're like I don't know any of this stuff where did all this come from right and it's possible and I think it depends on. Each family is going to be a little different. Like some families are very meticulous with record keeping. Like, oh, we have copies of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, other people, it's like a, um, you know, mystery theater learning about your parents. <laughs> like, oh, wow, I didn't know they did this, you know, yeah. like, or they have no record of anything. And, and so every situation is a little bit different. You could do that. Some estates do, will do like an appraisal. Um, because maybe they have really no idea what a property's worth yeah. or, um, you know, estates are a little bit tricky because I've had situations recently too, where, um, not everyone's always on the same page in the estate. Right. And you don't know who's the executor. The executor turns out to be like, um, you know, the one child that everyone else in the family, you know, hates, hates right. And doesn't <laughs> get along with. And suddenly they, they, you know, there's a conspiracy that that child's out to sell the home and they don't know what they're doing and all this stuff. Right. Yeah. So you get into another whole layer of dynamic family dynamics that, um, you know, are interesting sometimes. Yeah. Because those, those longtime homeowners sometimes end up turning into a state, you know, owned properties. Sure. Uh, people don't want to sell after a certain point. You know, that's the home that they lived in. Maybe they have it paid off. Maybe right. it doesn't make sense to sell. Yep. And so, then just like every seller has their own ec- economic reality, the three children um, who are set to, you know, inherit shares of the estate all have their own economic reality, right? Child A is very successful, doesn't need the money. Child B uh, was living with the parents, and now you want to sell their home out from under them. And yeah. child C is broke and needs every last penny. You know, so there's now you have to not only judge or, or like accommodate one seller. Now you got three that you're trying to juggle and and do what's best for, right? Yeah, uh, so it's, it gets tricky. And uh, I would imagine I don't know if you encountered this, but you know, a sale of one living owner could turn into an estate sale midway right and then you could kind of is there a an out clause in that case so so say i'm you know my father was selling a house and he passed away three quarters of the way through right and now the estate of my father has to finish up the sale like does the estate have to go through with that contract or how does Um, that work i mean in that case i guess there could be an out i mean i think typically you would find though if someone's at that stage, unless it's a total shock, right? Yeah. Um, 
most of the time people know like they're selling because the parents transitioning to a care facility, something like that. So usually it's just a, it's almost like we knew this was coming and that's why we're doing this. Um, but maybe in the, you know, the odd situation of like a tragedy, right? Yeah. Like, then that's a different story. Yeah. I'm talking, sure. you know, say right. the guy has a heart attack right. out of nowhere, good health. I mean, it happens. Right. Yeah. Uh, now you're getting out of two contracts probably because yeah. they're selling and buying. Right. Exactly. Right. So w- with that, the estate, I don't think they would be right. obligated the, to to the previous contract right. Right. of their father. Now, um, what do you suggest either the, the, the owners of these homes that have, they've owned a home for a long time or, or even that maybe their kids are kind of getting involved? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you think are some of the things they should do before maybe listing, maybe right. to get, get their mindset correct? Because I think a lot of it's mindset and kind of getting expectations sure. in line. Yep. I think probably the best starting point and what people don't realize about attorneys a lot of times, which is funny, is like typically I'm the last person in the transaction. Um, a lot of times, um, maybe the mortgage person sometimes if it's on the buy, um, but usually I'm the only person that hasn't been in the house, um, which yeah. is always interesting when people are asking you about repair things you know i said you know look i'm at a disadvantage i'm i'm the one guy you know your inspector's been in there your realtor's been in there you've been in there i've never seen this house like you have to tell me what your impression of the place was um so i think early on a realtor's like a very important person um i had a client recently actually it wasn't a client it was a acquaintance i met at a real estate networking thing extremely successful guy um been in real estate his entire life was selling like a house he had lived in for like 30 or 40 years or something up in Massachusetts. Um, from knowing the guy, it was a very tastefully decorated house and everything. So he's telling me, it's like, it's interesting. Like I love my house. I put a, you know, years and years of decorating it. And my wife and I are into like, you know, nice things. And we took care to choose what we put in. He's like, my agent comes in and tells me like everything Brown has to go, you know? So he's <laughs> like, so suddenly like what I've spent my entire life, acquiring and decorating people don't like anymore. So I literally cleared my, you know, this person had to clear their house. Uh-huh. They, they thought it was best to stage it. So it didn't look like, you know, uh, uh, the height of 1980s, uh, yep. good taste. Right. Um, so while the things may have been expensive, um, arguably still, you know, good taste or whatever, new, new buyers wouldn't relate to it and they'd probably be turned off by the house. Sure. So this guy found himself like clearing out his house, throwing everything in storage or selling it and, um, staging the house and selling really quickly. Um, so I think someone like a realtor is probably like the, you know, if you find a person that knows the area, um, look for someone that sold, you know, houses that you would like to move into, um, that hopefully has good taste. They'll come in and tell you and say, this is what buyers are looking for in this neighborhood. And probably for people that have, excuse me, been in a house for like 20, 30 years, it's literally going to have to be clearing out a lot of stuff. You know, that's probably your best bet. I mean, you can still sell a house that's cluttered. Like, you know, I've seen inspection reports where it says we could not open the garage door because it was too full of stuff stored, right? (laughs) Yeah, the door couldn't even roll back. (laughs) We couldn't even get in the garage because that one actually was a multi-generational where one kid grew up in the house, now was living in the house with his kids. So there was like a collection of like two generations of family stuff, like in the attic garage, everywhere. Um, So those houses can be sold. 
But probably if you plan ahead, you probably sell quicker and for more money by decluttering is probably yes. a big thing. There's very simple things you can do. Um, people, you know, believe it or not, people will paint um, because color tastes change, right? You know, yeah. for 20 years ago, these were kind of the main go-to colors. Now it's entirely different. So there's very simple things you can do to kind of bring your house up to date. Because the last thing you want to do is have someone walk in um, and say, I literally need to change this entire house because that affects their, their price perspective. You know, if they can walk in and say, you know, actually I don't have to do a lot. Like, you know, I might update this and that and the other, but their perspective totally changes, you know? But it, it, it's hard sometimes to tell someone that's older to spend money. Right. You know, cause like you said, they're kind of, the roof is almost done. The, the water here. A lot of times they're just kind of. I just want to go, right? You know, but it, it's important that the agent gives them a realistic view of the value in that condition. Sure. And maybe the value if they add a little bit more money into the house. Right. Um, yeah, I think for most people, you're not going to redo things, right? But what are little tweaks you can make to to make the house present well? Yeah. At this time, right? So it doesn't look like you haven't done anything in 25 years and someone's going to have to come in and do everything. Yeah. Do you suggest um, people kind of seeking at at least uh, your, your, your name or like seeking the, uh, the team of the attorney early on so they know when they go into the process, like our Evan's already my guy. Right. Like, uh, do you suggest kind of, Going forward and, and building your team early on before totally. you really get get deep into the process. Sure, um, you know I think the benefit, um, like most businesses, people will talk to you, right? So if you you could call any attorney, realtor, mortgage person, they're all going to talk to you and and give you their time, right? Yeah. You can ask them questions. If they don't, then that's probably someone you don't want to work with, right? Um, so if someone called me today and said, "Here's you know I'm thinking of selling at this point down the road." Um, what should I be doing? You know, that's a helpful conversation because most of the time I'm playing catch up. It's after the fact, right? Like, Oh, our offer was accepted or we accepted an (laughs) offer. Um, I'm told attorney review ends tomorrow and we don't have an attorney and it's like, all right, now we got to do, you know, boom, 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 boom. And and we're rushing through. Yeah. Right. So, you know, if people know how the process works and have that conversation in advance, I think that's always helpful. Right. And then, Maybe there are recommendations I can make. You know, maybe there, uh, you know, maybe I know a stager that, that no one has suggested before, um, you know, or a contractor that could show them something. Or, you know, sometimes someone comes to you without a realtor. You know, it's possible. Most yeah. of the time people already have their realtor, I find. Yeah, I, I think that definitely building your team early on is very important. Sure. And it, it sets the foundation for everything else moving forward. Right. Uh, it's. I know for for you guys, a lot of times it is, oh my God, the offer was accepted. Or, right. <laughs> we need an attorney. Like, who do you want to use? Right. And uh, sometimes it, it's hard for the buyer and seller to think about the next person that's in line. They 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 just got through maybe the pre approval process for like a buyer. Sure. And then they chose an agent. And they're like, man, I got to choose another person now. And right. it's like, there's actually a few more people down the road you might have to build totally. onto your team. Uh, if if the buyer or the seller trusts the agent, I think that's a little easier because mm-hmm. then the agent could kind of put their their team in there. They kind of they work well together. Right. 
Um, and not every client clicks with their agent either. Um, there's people, I don't know how, you know, they ended up, maybe they called, they saw the person's name next to the property. They were <laughs> looking on Zillow themselves. I call that agent. That's my agent. And maybe that agent didn't do a good job of, like, people come to me with contracts that have things in it that they're not aware of or yeah. um, don't include things that they felt were important and had been discussed and agreed to. You know, oh, we agreed to, um, we can't close until, you know, a much later date. And they said that was fine. Okay, well, your contract has a closing date of, you know, five weeks from now. It seems yeah. like a quick closing, you know. So sometimes there's uh, a correction process you have to do. You have to quickly, you know, I'm meeting someone for the first time by phone. Um, we've never met in person. And it's a little bit of a leap of faith for them. Like, all right, I'm putting my, you know, all of my <laughs> well-being in this yeah. guy's hands. Yeah, you know? I haven't even met him yet. Right. And then I quickly have to kind of decipher the whole situation. Like, all right, well, here's what your contract says. Here's what's going on. And, and then get up to speed pretty quickly. You know? yeah. And I, I preach <laughs> maybe too much, but so many people go with an agent or anybody in the process without really interviewing and, and taking the time right. to see if that person is actually the right fit for them. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's because they're a relative or a friend of a friend and they feel obligated. Right. Sometimes it's some random person. They just saw a sign and they go, okay, you know, I'm going to just, I'm going to use X, Y, Z because I see their sign everywhere. Uh, you know, I think every everyone's situation is a little different, mm -hmm. but if you don't take the time to at least interview a couple of people, sure, a couple of agents, a couple of mortgage people, and then it'll lead to whoever they use, you know, their attorneys or their uh, home inspectors and the whole right. nine yards, you kind of build your team up early. It doesn't take that much time to build a team. No. I mean, how long does it take to talk to a couple of agents? Right. I mean, agents will make time for you pretty quickly. Sure. They want the work as much as anybody else. And you'll find when you talk to different professionals, there's pluses and minuses to, you know, you could go with the agent that's pushing a bunch of homes every year. They're sell they're, you know, a big producer. Can that agent give you maybe the time and attention you need right. as someone that's maybe selling half the amount of homes? Sure. Maybe the person that sells half the amount of homes is selling half the amount for a different reason. You, you really got to dig into what's going on there. Totally. Um, I don't think right now the you know the quote underneath their card of how many years of experience matters as much because I I, I found that the more experience, a lot of times you, you see them giving less service now because right. they're not up to date with what's out there. Uh, I see, you know, I see many agents that have been in the business for a long time that refuse to hire a photographer. Right. You know, I, I don't get it. You know, you're selling a three, four, I don't care if it's $200,000 home. Right. The job of an agent on the sell end, I think has gotten easier. The technology has gotten easier to, to get the comparables. Sure. You're not going through binders anymore like they used to. And maybe right. in their head, they think they're still doing that much work. Back then, they did a lot of work. Right. But now, it's a few clicks on the mouse, and you get your comps. Um, it, it, it takes nothing. I mean, it, the effort for them to sell your home now has to be put into other avenues. Right. And I think taking your time to to interview and look at some of the other listings see do they use a professional you know have, if you're uh, an expensive home on the shore have they done drone shots will they do drone shots 
it, it, have you seen their ads on Facebook or right. Instagram? You know, are they using all the tools? At the end, the buyer is going to buy because the home is available in the area. The, mm-hmm. I, I don't care. You could send out postcards. You could you could have a, a plane flying a banner across the right. Jersey Shore. It doesn't matter right. if, if the home is available in the area that a buyer wants. It's going to come on their radar. They see it before I see it. Sure. You know, there's times. I'll get texts like, hey, did you just see this? I'm like, I, what the hell? I don't right. I don't know. But they got alerts from Realtor.com, Zillow. Everyone's alerting them before they alert me. Right. And so the buyer now is different than they used to be. Yep. But as a seller, you really should take the time to see exactly what you're getting on your end. Right. Um, I have – see, my view of uh, how, how agents get paid might be a little different than most people's view. Uh, if you, if you look online and, and anybody that's been a friend with a real estate agent probably has seen the meme that says, you know, why not use a realtor to, to help, uh, buy a house when you don't get charged for it as a buyer. Right. I, I feel differently. I think why not use an agent to help sell the house when the buyer's really paying for the the whole process. Who who is paying that mortgage? The buyer, right? You know, when you go and buy a can of Coke, Coke pays a marketing company, distributors. They pay all these people to get that can to to that local deli right. before you buy it. But once you buy it, you paid everybody back. So the, the sure. buyer is actually paying for everybody, right? So especially sellers. Take the time to interview, get the best representation you can, because that's probably going to lead to more money mm-hmm. and you're going to pay, you're going to get that money back. Right. But the cost of agents is the cost of selling the product. Yep. You know, when, when people for sale by owner, I, I kind of equate it to, you know, buying uh whatever, well, Coca-Cola at, at Collingswood flea market, mm-hmm. you know, you're not going to pay the same price at Collingswood for Coke as you would at ShopRite. Sure. But ShopRite has representation, Collingswood doesn't. Right. So you pay more money, the, the buyer pays more money because they have professionals representing the deal. Mm-hmm. The same thing goes in real estate. Right. So if you're a seller, I don't care if you're a seller of five years or 30 years, take the time to get the best representation you can because the, the, the buyer's paying for it anyway. Right. I, in the end, the, the seller doesn't cut a check out of his own pocket saying, hey, Mike, Regardless if this house sells, I'm giving you ten thousand dollars. Right. It's not happening. Right. With the money I put out, the photography, the the marketing, the online marketing, that's all out of my pocket. Sure. And if I'm not doing the right job to make sure the house gets sell, sold, then that's all negative on me. Correct. Right. But if if you know, I see so many sellers out there and I and I look at these listing pictures and I go, the listing photo is, is the gateway to your house now. <laughs> The first place people see your home is on on a cell phone. Right. Now, I, I understand a lot of it's, you know, people look at it, they go, wow, and they show up to the place and they go, man, it doesn't look like that. But the job of me as an agent is to bring that person in. Right. When they, when they get there, they can make the assessment if they want to live there or not. But if I'm not at least doing the bare minimum of sure. doing good photography, some decent marketing right. online where people are um, – you're doing a disservice, and and at the end, the buyer is paying everything. You're you're really not paying anything out of your pocket. I mean, the proceeds come out of your end, right? But I think it's all just a play on words, to tell you the truth. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing for me, like the new phenomenon. Well, there's two things. One is like I find everyone always wants to save money on the attorney, which is I find funny. Is 
you know, this is my $500,000 lifetime investment, but let me save a thousand bucks on an attorney because, you know, I don't, <laughs> like, because that's where I should cut corners, you yeah. know. But then also, um, there's a new phenomenon, you know, it's, investors are, are very popular these days. So you got a lot of people out fixing and flipping properties. They're the probably quintessential people that want to do every part of the job themselves, right? Because they don't want to pay. They're like, I need every last dollar out of this transaction. So I'll be the realtor. I'll be the contractor. I'll be the attorney. I'll be this. I'll be that. Um, with the pictures is hilarious. I saw one recently where, I mean, there were literally workers still like finishing up the kitchen. And that was like <laughs> the photo, you know, there were like big paint buckets on the floor. It's like, all right, we can see you did a half-assed job in this kitchen, and now you like memorialized it, right? Yeah, now, like, now we, now, you know, instead of like there, nice evidence. photos, you know, you know, what it, what does it cost you to send someone to do like quality photos? You know, a hundred bucks, couple hundred bucks, um, but it would make a huge difference of, you know, not only the price you get, days on the market, all of those things factor Absolutely. into doing it right, you know. So it's interesting, um, and, and a lot of it, you know, once the the seller gets out of their head that they're going to sell it on their own. And I, I mean, I could do a whole show on that. Right. You know, I mean, you're, you're just limited. You're, you're limiting your, your exposure. Right. You may get a buyer, but if you have a buying pool of uh, 10,000 compared to a hundred thousand, right. Chances are you're going to get a buy, better buyer out of that hundred thousand. Yep. But it, you, so many sellers, they have to get over that hump first that oh, I don't want to pay Three, four, five percent, six percent to an agent. Right. Now I try to explain. You're, you're, you know, the the buyer is paying all that money. It, it's it's a part of the cost of, of selling your home. The attorney, that your your uh, your your state, the, the tax you're going to pay. That's all a part of doing business. Sure. Buying and selling. When you sell on eBay and you use PayPal, you're paying eBay. You're paying PayPal. Right. But that end proceed is just a part of doing business. Yep. eBay and PayPal are a part of doing business. Your agent and your attorney are part of doing business. Right. So the two most important people there, especially on the sell side, you want the best representation you can. So sure. going for the discount, uh, you know, attorney to save a couple hundred bucks, right. where you could have someone that that will lead you a lot better, a lot more thorough through the process. Mm-hmm. You, you got to listen to the people that have been there, the agents that have been there that that say, hey. Uh, you could go with this guy. I don't, you know, right. I've been on that side of the deal and <laughs> it's going to get done. It's just not going to be pretty. Right. Or you could have this person here that's going to answer your phone, answer your texts, talk to your kids and, and, and get the process done correctly. Right. But I, you're correct. It all starts with the agent mm-hmm. and taking the time to really vet and find the right agent that's going to, and actually doing some homework. Right. So many people, I, I don't, I really, it, it boggles my mind. I go, you're selling a five hundred thousand dollar home. Look at this person's other listings. Right. Look at listings that you would like to buy. Do they look anything like that? Mm. And and a lot of times they don't. Right. But they still go with that person. Right. And I go, why wouldn't you want someone out there promoting the best they can? Because on, sure. on the sell side, you're a promoter more than anything. Right. Uh, for me, having my construction background, I try to give them also the other aspect of. What's wrong with the house? Hey, this might pop up in home inspection. Let's come up with a plan. Maybe you might want to fix A through Z right now. Right. And then we'll play defense after. You can't fix everything. No. You know, but if, you, if we could fix some of the obvious, um, you know, ask your agent, 
you know, are they going to help you through the CO process? You know, are they going to be there for inspections? You know, all this other stuff. Yep. See if if they're the right agent for you. Some sellers, they don't need all that hand-holding. Right. You know, but I think most sellers, especially those that have owned a home for a long time, they don't remember the process. No. They, they, I mean, they're so far removed. Right. They, they think it's back in the day when everyone's kind of having coffee together signing documents. Absolutely, right. And a lot of times that's not how it is. You're signing at your attorney a day before. No one ever sees anybody. Right. You know, docu signs all all day and night. Yeah, that's um, the biggest change for a lot of people. It is. It's yeah. everyone. That's a a big comment. Wow, it's a lot different from when we bought our house and we forgot what it was like. You exactly. Know? It's true. Um, yeah, I mean, you touched on the inspection thing for sellers. That's like an interesting dynamic, I think, where um, if someone can tell them upfront, you know, these are some things you. You, you know, we know they're going to come up in the inspection report, right? So get out in front of it, do some of those things now so your report doesn't, you know, come back and shock your buyers. At the same time, if, if you're encountering a lot of problems in your report and you're not going to deal with any of them, right? Um, if they're bad enough, your buyer's going to walk away. And all that's going to happen is you're going to have to address these. We know they're going to come up in your next inspection Absolutely, report, right? Yeah. So at some point, you're going to have to address these things. So the question is, you know, what's the best way to address them? Sometimes is it, you know, throw a little bit. If, if your buyer's willing to take a credit and take those problems on themselves, why not get it over with now? Because they're going to come up again and again and again. You know, Absolutely, If you yes. think you're going to just get on to the next buyer and someone's going to, I said it was as is and that's what I mean. I'm not doing anything. Well, you're gonna you're you're looking for a very specific buyer then, right? Yeah, and, and that and that that's like the unicorn. You know, right. you're not gonna, you know, it, it's gonna like you said, it comes up over and over again. And I think in the beginning, if you get that expectation and you and you learn about certain things, and the agent is able to educate you on, okay, homes in this condition are gonna sell at this price. So when, when if we get in this area of pricing, it's the right price, right? And as long as everyone in the deal kind of knows what's going on, it, it'll it'll go through. Right. But I think when the the seller ha- is stubborn in their head a little bit, like no, 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 I'm right. not fixing that, and we're still selling it at this price. I, th- I think it takes a a little more educating and hand holding by the agent and maybe some professionals for them to come in and say, hey, listen, let's really talk about this. Let, right. Let's go, maybe go look at other homes in, in the same price range. Yep. Let's really see what we're comparing ourselves to. Right. So you know if you're selling the other the competitor's home for them. Right. You know, if your house is in worse condition at a higher price, the guy down the street is sold a day before you because, you know, the, the people are naturally going to go to that house. Sure. Um, and we got, we're in a little bit of a unique time where, you know, it was definitely a seller's market. Um, people were overpaying for things, probably um, multiple bids. You know, yeah. so everyone has different strategies in those situations too, right? It's like, all right, I I know I paid five grand more than asking, but I'm going to make it up during inspections, right? <laughs> or, you know, I paid ten grand over, but when this sucker doesn't appraise, we're going to back it right back down. Yeah. You know, so everyone has their own unique strategy. So sometimes it's you know, having like a longer range vision um, gets you through without as many problems, right? Like, is it worth like taking the highest bid when this person, when that's their only goal is their their dying act is going to be, I'm going to get le- every last dollar back out of yeah. this, you know? Sometimes you got to look for the, the cleanest transaction. You know? and, that, and that's true. You, looking ahead down the road. Right. Because there, there's sure signs of, I mean... That's, it's a tactic in this market. 
you play yourself so many different ways, mm-hmm. you know, especially as a buyer. Like, what do I have to do to get the house? And then they're the same thing. Like, all right, well, I know when, when someone says, well, I'll pay this amount. If it's not going to appraise, I could tell. Like, all right, right. Well, you're probably not going to appraise. But then maybe that's a part of their tactic. You know, right. So as a seller, if you see it going way out of whack, mm-hmm. hopefully your agent is there to say, hey, listen, they're offering way more. There's a chance that they're not going to pay this. And I, and I had this conversation with someone. Uh, I was giving them a comp on a house, and they were like, whoa, uh, I, could, I could get way more than that. I right. had someone knock on my door and offer more than that. And I said, listen, I understand they might have knocked on your door and offered you more than what I said. Right. But I guarantee you when they go to appraise the house, the number is going to come closer to mine. Right. And now you're going to get backed off because now you're in a deal. You're going to find a home that you want to buy. Yep. And they know this. They're going to come back and say, hey, did an appraise. Right. Now what do you do? Right. Like, numbers just don't magically inflate. You yep. know, I don't care how much, right. you know, there's a chance that maybe they will keep it. At, mm. but, but once that appraisal comes back, a lot of times that's where it, it kind of settles down and then people go, either they, they, they think the seller was trying to rip them off right. or uh, – it gets it gets crazy at that. Yeah, point. appraisals are a whole interesting other animal. Yeah, you know, it's like when I made my offer at three fifty, I, I firmly believed I was getting a good deal and and I wanted to buy the house at, at that price. Suddenly, you know, one appraiser's opinion is that the house is worth three forty. I'm not paying three fifty. Like yeah. the house isn't worth it. Well, you know, now I want to pay three thirty five. Right. Four <laughs> four weeks ago, the house to you is worth every penny. You know? Exactly. So it's tough. Yeah. And that, that's a conversation that, you know, the the seller and the buyer, I mean, the seller has to – I think the appraisal is going to always come back close. Right. I mean, they're not going to be 350 400 But, it, I mean, it's always going to be, you know, I think plus or minus right. you know, 5 8000 I mean, with it – I've with seen it, a few. Like every once in a while you get we, – we had one that was a three appraisal situation where the swing was like sixty grand and you couldn't wow. believe it, right? You're like – How high – but how much was the house? It the wasn't home? that much. It was like oh, a really? four-ish, four-ish, you know, and really? it was – That's, so a, that's one a big time swing for Right, it. totally. Yeah. You're, you're coming in at 340. All right, let's redo it. And then it comes back in. You're like, what happened, you know? Yeah. Um, now, I found that like in areas like in Deal, New Jersey, um, Elberon, where there's places where people – sometimes do cash transactions mm-hmm. that are not on the books. Right. You got to go through. And uh, I, I like to look at the square footage price, seeing what, what's sold, kind of right. coming up with a, with a realistic idea. Yep. So when I talk to the appraiser and I go, well, I valued the house at this much because I used this to get the number. Put right. some Put some uh, like math to it. Sure. Not just, hey, I thought it was worth it. Right. You know? Um, yeah, and then those are things like – you know, this is like a a realtor promotion show almost. It's like, you know, a, a good agent does, a, you know, a good agent's there. Not every appraiser will take the information, but yeah. a good agent's there with a book of information said, here's why I believe the place is worth what it's worth. And I, here's some comps and here's this. And I think that's important. It's funny. I met some dudes, uh, some flippers that do the opposite. They were trying to get short sales approved and some of their tactics were like, how do we make the house look as crappy as possible, oh. right? So they'd, 
they'd get in there before <laughs> before the appraiser showed up, open every kitchen cabinet, you know. So when the the appraiser's taking the photos, the place looks like it was looted. Yeah, you know, looks like a dump. They're trying to give you all the crime stats for the neighborhood, yeah. you know. So there's a way to kind of it's not really gaming the system, but educating. Look, you can make an argument either way on anything, right? Yeah. You can say here's here's exactly why this place is worth what we're selling for, or here's I'm, here's why it's way overpriced, and you should accept this short sale offer. I was on the sell end. It was an estate sale, and the buyer bid up high to buy, and then they came back and brought in multiple appraisers. But they went from paying, you know, bidding at the price that they won the bid to starting to uh, bring comps of distressed properties <laughs> right. to bring down the value. Right, right. And I was like, it, th- "That's not how it works." Yeah, you know. Eventually, I told them, "I said, just just walk, right? Because we're we're not going to accept your number." You can't use a distressed property for a, a conventional sale. It, right. It's not – this isn't a distressed property. Keep moving. Right. But, you know, it's up to the agent a lot of times to kind of decipher and ask those questions. Like, well, what are you using as comps? Let right. me look at those comps. Let me – you know, you have to do some work. Sure. You can't just, you know, put everything on the, the seller and say, hey, well, what do you think? Yes or no? Right. You know, you got to go through and say, well, all right, this offer is kind of low. This makes sense. This is going to be high. Maybe they might try to back off after. I mean, you really, and that that goes with putting the work in before interviewing and getting a feel for the agent. Yep. And just because an agent's new also doesn't mean that as long as they know to use their resources, right. their uh, broker, you know, have other people involved, yep. you could still have a great agent there, someone that's really going to work hard for you. Sure. So thanks you, thank you for uh, all that information. I'm sure we could talk about I mean, just the, that process forever. Uh, but for right now, I want to ask you four questions, a little quattro fire. Uh-oh. We're going to learn a little bit more about you. All right, so what's your favorite book? On the Road by Jack Kerouac. What's that about? It's uh, a young man's adventure traveling cross-country <laughs> in, like, 1950s America. As a music uh, <laughs> <laughs> manager? <laughs> and uh, as a... Uh, Dude finding himself, I guess, right? Yeah. Just his adventures uh, across. You know, I think for me, like since college, I always had that ideal vision of driving across America in a convertible Cadillac. (laughs) Uh, I never did it. I drove across country once to Vegas, but it wasn't in a big old convertible Cadillac. No. Was it as fun as he thought it would be? It was pretty good, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd still like to get out on Route 66 and make that trek like Chicago out to the West Coast would be cool, I think, you know? Yeah. We, my wife and I, we bought a camper. Nice. So we're we're living a, the mini life that way. That's and, cool. Uh, you know, getting out to see different places. Are and, you? Uh, but yeah, it, I think that would be cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Just just getting out, it, it's a different way to vacation, you know, going out with a camper, going to campsites, right. seeing different areas, meeting different people. Yep. Uh, it really brings back a little bit of like old time America. Yeah, it's totally. It's a lot of fun. That was actually one of the a good stop uh, on my trip cross country was we camped in nebraska of all places but it was like right before we got into colorado so you were sort of on the plains but off in the distance you saw the rockies and it was just a cool spot to camp and then the next morning you're driving through the rockies it was awesome that is awesome what's your favorite show uh man i got a bunch right now it's ozark that's like my my newest one actually i just watched uh episode one of season two last night um all time it's hard to say like I probably quote Seinfeld the most. <laughs> um, that's a good one. I love Breaking Bad. Um, those are a handful of Sopranos, of course. Of course. What's your favorite quote? Um, 
I don't know if I have one right now. I think I bounce around from time to time. Um, one, I'll t- do it total injustice, was a dude recently I read online, and he was quoting someone else, and I don't even remember who it was. But his whole point was, you know, to people that throw out that quote every day of like, oh, what are you doing today? Oh, same old shit. You know, he's like, the quote had something to do with like, every day is unique in its own way, right? So enjoy that. So it's even if like, all right, Monday to Friday, I'm waking up and I'm going to work. Um, there is something special about each day, right? You learn something each day. You have an interaction with your kid that day that's special. Um, you know, so I like that. I don't know what the exact quote is, yeah. but it's basically like appreciate every day because they're, it's not the same old shit. Every day is its own little unique thing. That's Definitely. It, it is true. You, Even though we, we, you end up going through the grind and it, it seems like you're doing the same SOS. You know right. what I mean? It's the same old stuff every day. Right. But when you do zoom out and you go like, man, maybe I affected someone, you know, positively today. Or, sure. You know, like that person's life is a little bit better because of what I do today. Right. And uh, I mean, you really, it's all about mindset and how you perceive things. Yep. Totally. And, uh, and that's definitely huge. And I think with kids, you know, you got young kids, yeah. I have young kids and it's, you know, there's something special about them every day. Right. Yes. They, they either some funny thing they say like i woke up the or my son woke up the other day i was changing his diaper he's like two uh first thing in the morning he just looks at me he's like i like your pink shirt dad (laughs) where's this kid first of all i didn't know he knew the color and that he like you know was processing what i was wearing it was just really funny you know or like my daughter the other day we got the back to school haircut and the kid was so happy with her haircut she just gave me the biggest hug. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, that's cool, man. You, yeah, know? You, you almost wish that you could like have a recording of those moments. Right. Like, totally. man, like I wish I had a GoPro going. Right. You know, yeah. you know there's, and, it, and it's all moments, just these small little moments. Totally. That, you know, if, if you actually like open your eyes and, and accept, like absorb it, you go, wow, like right. that's cool. Totally. Like, that could actually make your day better. Absolutely. Just, just accepting the, the great little moments in life. Right. What's the your the favorite piece of advice either you could give or someone gave you? Um, that's a tough one. I mean, I what just popped in my head. I guess I'll go with that. Um, when I went, so we went through how I went back to law school. Right, my first time in law school, I was a terrible student. I was focused on like I thought it was like. I'm going to go out and be an entertainment lawyer before I learn about the law. Like, right. I'm out, <laughs> I'm out at CBGB's brownies, Mercury lounge. I'm at like every big club in the city where the bands are playing, meeting bands. I'm like, we're gonna get bands signed. And I thought that's what it was all about. Right. As a student, I was a disaster. Like I hid from my professors. No one knew me. Um, so when I was going back to school, it was like a twofold thing. I was like, you know, I'd, I'd had a lot of life experience. I had a lot of success. Um, but I never, I still really wasn't a good law student. So like, as I'm driving out to school, kind of dawned on me like, Oh my God, like, I don't know if I can do this, you know? Um, but someone told me, they said, you know, introduce yourself to your professors, um, ask them, what do I have to do to be successful in your class? And I kind of took all that advice. So I was like the exact opposite, uh, of myself when I went back to school. Like I actually, I started this group there. We had lunch with every one of our professors. So like I put myself on everyone's radar right away, yeah. you know, to make myself accountable. Um, so I think that was a, a good piece of advice that I never got before, which was just basically, you'll succeed a lot just by a showing up 
letting other people know you're trying, um, it makes a big difference, you know? And, and I mean, that's a great piece of advice right now with people going back to school. Right. <laughs> you know, college is starting right now. And, and maybe uh, for people that have kids going into school, I mean, that's, that's a great piece of advice. Don't be the kid up in the corner. Right. At the end of the class or beginning, go down there, introduce yourself. Totally. And uh, I think that's important throughout life. Yep. You know, getting yourself out there, network, put your hand out, shake someone's hand and say, hey, I'm such and such. And, uh, you know, how right. maybe, you know, I'm in school, like, uh, how, you know, what do I need to do, like you said, to, to adv- succeed in this class? And right. I think that builds a certain level of character that goes through life. Totally. Um, I used it, I, I taught it to my daughter as well, and she's... She's like the opposite of me as a kid. She actually listened to me and, and, <laughs> and took my advice. But you get the benefit of the doubt, right? Yeah. I used to get the opposite benefit of the doubt. It was like, you know, that guy probably did not read the assignment, you know, would be the benefit <laughs> of the doubt I got. You know, the benefit of the doubt she gets is she's probably doing the work and really trying. Yep. And maybe she's just having a problem with this particular thing. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And that, and that changes the mindset of the other person. Totally. Right. It gives them a whole different view of who you are. Yeah. And it worked. Like she had her... Her class, she could never figure out was art. She's like, I don't. She's like, you know, I'm not a good artist. And you get like a what do you get? Like an S for satisfactory and an O for outstanding, right? So she was like a little bit of an overachiever. She's like, you know, I understand. I work really hard in art, but I always get an S. Like, what's the story? I said, well, go ask your teacher and say, what do I have to do to get an O in this class? Because I try really hard. And she did, and sure enough, next mark period, she got an O, right? Because it it was more about the teacher knowing she cared. Because I think the teacher's perception was like, this kid just mails it in and doesn't really care about art or something, yep. you know. So it works. You know? Definitely. That's it's a cool. great piece of advice. I love it. Uh, so where can people find you? Give us all your information, uh, your website, everything, a- anywhere people could uh, get in touch with you. Cool. You can always find me if you happen to see a green Jeep in a par- parking lot. That's probably <laughs> me. Um, feel free to walk up and say hi. My website is balmerlawgroup.com. Um, on Instagram, at Evan Balmer. And we do have a new, I think it's Balmer Law Group probably on Instagram also. Um, you can check us out there. Awesome. Any phone numbers? Uh, 732-772-1333 is the office. Um and you 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 have an office in Homedale and in Asbury Park. Correct. So we're in Homedale, right by Vonage on uh, five twenty there, and then in Asbury. In the last couple of months, we just opened um, right above High Voltage Cafe in Asbury Park on Springwood Ave. It's an awesome spot. Definitely check it it's out. A good spot. Good coffee down there. Exactly. Come by, have a cup of coffee. It's dangerous being that close to it, like a great cafe. It is. Yeah. The the smell of coffee. Actually, it's nice because it's always uh, good music playing. They have uh, excellent taste in music there. They're play, <laughs> like, like I bought uh, a couple speakers for the office when we opened it up. I haven't used them because you the high voltage playlist right. is spot on. Um, and then there's uh, bike repair in the building as well. So <laughs> occasionally you'll either hear like a bell of a bike or a blown tire you know one or the other but it but it's an awesome spot and uh he's a great guy so if you're in need of an attorney do you just practice in new jersey uh so i'm licensed in new york and new jersey when i first my first office was in new york um on wall street but we closed that 
uh, last year. So now I'm I'm licensed in New York, but our, my office is only in New Jersey. And you and you do more than just real estate law. Yeah, so yeah. we do real estate, uh, business, and entertainment. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, and thank everyone for listening to the show. My name is Mikey T. Michael Anthony Timpani, as my mama named me. You can find. You can follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at First Timers Podcast Show. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at THS Home Advisors and at Mikey T Sells NJ Homes. A link to all the websites can be found on our social sites, and you can pretty much put a .com after those names, and it'll bring you right to our websites. Please leave a review on iTunes, share, and subscribe to our weekly podcast. Message us with any questions or topics you may want to hear. And if you're a professional that could bring some value to our audience, please reach out. I'd love to hear from you. Together we can learn and grow. I'd like to end with a quote, and this week's quote is from Zig Ziglar. If you can dream it, then you can achieve it. You will get all you want in life if you help enough other people get what they want. God bless and have an amazing week, everyone.